All right, well, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, this was kind of a tough week. I think it's um, okay for us to acknowledge that. There were a lot of hard things this week, not uh, so much for me personally, but uh, just all the news, uh, all the, the sadness was pretty overwhelming. And uh, it's right for us uh, to feel that sadness for sure. There's a time for us as Christians to just be like, no, 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 uh, to lament, because obviously uh, this is not how the world should be. Uh, we look out at some of what is happening, and uh, that's just what comes out. This is not how it should be. Uh, this is wrong. And of course, many would say that I, I know that's not just a Christian thing to say. It's not just Christians who lament, and I'm glad. I think almost everybody would say that, and yet uh, this is a tension because not everyone really has a reason for saying that, actually. And uh, I don't want to get uh, too philosophical, and I, I am glad for common grace and that people can still feel sorrow and pity we, we should all be glad for that. That's one of the things that's actually missing in hell. Sorrow and pity are, are gone. But maybe just to press on this for a minute, uh, because as Christians, we have a, a certain worldview, and it's different. And you know a worldview, what is that? It's a lens through which you look at the world. It's uh, basically a set of presuppositions or ideas about the world and why it's here and, and, and where it's going and how it works that helps you understand what's happening, that you use to interpret life. So everyone has a worldview, obviously, uh, whether they know it or not. They have a, a story that they believe and uh, that they assume is true about the world and about how it works and that they use to interpret the data, the facts, the events that they see. And uh, the predominant worldview right now, I think, or, or at least the one that's being pressed on us as reasonable, is that there is no God, and uh, that all there is is what we see, and uh, we're basically animals, we live and die, and, and, and there you go. And that's a worldview, they don't tell you that, uh, but it requires a lot of assumptions, you have to assume a lot. To believe that. It's actually a faith system. That's a faith system. You have to believe things to believe that is reasonable. And one reminder of that to me is actually uh, the way that we react as humans when we see some of the things that we're seeing this week. Because we all know this is fundamentally wrong. This is fundamentally not how the world should be. But why? You know? Why is this not the way the world should be? Because there's a way the world should be. And we know it. Deep down, we know it. And yet, while of course, I know that you can come up with some ways to try to argue for morality if you embrace the story that we came from nowhere and we're going nowhere, that it's the survival of the fittest, the strong over the weak, you embrace that story, if that really is your story, it is actually hard to see how anything matters at all, except for you and what you want in that moment, which when we're pressed against the wall, we know isn't true. We know it matters, all of us. And yet as Christians, we have a reason for believing that if we go back to our story, the one we use to interpret the world. We know there is a God, and this is not the way he created the world to function. This is not the way the world was originally created, and it's not the way that he's going to leave it. And this is where we can start talking about some, some good news, because we open up our Bibles, and we see that God is taking the world somewhere. There is a plan so it's not just us living in this endless, meaningless cycle, live, die, repeat. No, God has a plan, and he is taking the world somewhere really good, ultimately. 
And one of the words, the key phrases that the Bible uses to describe where God is taking the world is the kingdom of God. And now we're, we're getting to Luke almost because this is what Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God. But when Jesus preached the kingdom of God, he wasn't preaching a new concept. Jesus was preaching the Bible. And he had lots of places in the Bible to preach the kingdom of God from because we get pictures of the kingdom of God all throughout the Old Testament, like starting on the first page in the Garden of Eden. That is a picture. And then even later with Israel and the temple, that's a picture as well. But then especially the prophets, and that's Isaiah through Malachi. And the prophets are standing up and saying over and over, this is where God is taking the world. It's bad. It looks bad right now. But don't despair. God has a plan. And you know, if you, if you, if you want to know what it's going to be like, imagine. And this is a quote I like. I'm sure I've used it before. But imagine a world where everything is true and right and everything is noble. Every area of life and society and commerce and education and everything else is under complete control and directed toward what is right. Imagine a world where there is total and lasting and enforced peace, where joy abounds, where health is widespread, where people live for hundreds of years, a world where there are lions and lambs lying down together and children can play in snake pits, where bears and cows walk together led by a child. Imagine a world where food is profuse and well-being is common to everyone. Imagine a world ruled by one perfect person, one world ruler, and where under that world ruler only glorified, perfected people are the agents who will carry out his will and his purpose, purpose so that perfection reigns from the top right on down through the whole system. You can uh, imagine a world like that. That is basically the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching. And that we're longing for as Christians, especially in a week like this. We're like, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And that is something that the Jewish people in Jesus' day would have been longing for as well. That's the thing. That was definitely their worldview. So they were living under Roman rule in Jesus' day. And at that point, we're kind of an insignificant nation, at least in the world's eyes. And they had experienced a lot of suffering, and yet they believed, they firmly believed, and had believed for thousands of years that their story was going somewhere. God made the world, God chose Israel, and God would remake the world to rescue his people and establish this perfect kingdom. That was like their creed, how they understood the world, how they interpreted the world, and what was happening. And they didn't have this secular way of looking at the world making it hard for them to believe that either. They believe that. And yet here comes Jesus, Luke says. And he is preaching about that kingdom, and he is doing all kinds of miracles, and he gets crucified. Why? Because that is a shocking ending. Jesus preaches. Jesus does miracles. Jesus gets crucified. You've got to ask why. To understand Jesus and what makes him so significant, you have to understand what made him so controversial. Because he's preaching about a kingdom that many people would have been wanting. And he's doing things that are amazing, and yet he gets crucified. And that's actually part of what is driving Luke to write this gospel, because that's strange. That is really strange. And you could maybe understand if it was the Romans who were the ones behind crucifying him because they had their own empire and they had their own way of, of looking at the world. But it wasn't the Romans as much as it was the religious leadership of Jesus' day. And so you've got to ask why, what happened? And this is where it gets really interesting because in Luke chapter 5 and 6, Luke begins to show us some of the things that made people angry about Jesus. And what made them angry about Jesus seems so different than what makes people angry now. For example, you remember we've been saying in these opening stories in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 32, that there's a little section here. And what is making the Pharisees upset 
is Jesus' relationship with sinners. They, they didn't like the way he related to sinners. If you look at verse 30 specifically, Luke says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, It's because this is who I'm coming for. In other words, the kingdom of God that I am preaching is for the unworthy. It is for those who know they're unworthy. And that comes up again and again throughout this gospel. Luke chapter 7 is a, a story about a sinful woman who is forgiven. And maybe you remember that Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house and a prostitute comes in. And uh, she starts crying and anointing Jesus' uh, feet with oil and kissing his feet. And the Pharisee says, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Which is his way of saying, like, my evaluation of Jesus is done. It's obvious that he's not even a, a prophet because of the way he's relating to this woman. And Luke chapter 15, verse 1 as well. Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Luke is stressing this. He's stressing this because this was a problem. And it's not a problem. Again, this is so important to understand. It's not a problem, actually, because the Pharisees were all these really terribly mean men who just felt pleasure in making others feel small and who were uh, going around wanting to whip everyone who took a step out of line. Because that's maybe how we picture them, I know. But these were respectable people. These were religious people. People looked up to the Pharisees. It was a problem because they had a worldview like us. They believed in the kingdom of God. And there were differences, of course, between the way they thought about it and the way we did. But still, they believed God had a plan. They believed God was going to send the Messiah. They believed God was going to establish his kingdom. And they had a way they thought that kingdom was going to work because they had studied their Bible. And they looked back at the way God had worked. And you know what they saw? They saw God used to live with us. He literally used to live with us. We could visit him. But now he doesn't. Not in the same way that he did. After we returned from exile, there was some sort of difference. And the problem started because we didn't keep his law. We didn't keep his law. And so here's the plan. We need to keep his law, like, really well. Because we do all this, and we do it well, and then God's going to show up and help. And Jesus is like, no. That's not how salvation works, because I'm the Messiah. I am the one God is sending, and I'm not coming to offer the kingdom of God to the worthy. I'm actually coming to give it to those who know they're not, which we accept as obvious. But we've got to look again more closely, because how can Jesus say that? Do you understand? How can Jesus say that? Because he's reading the same Bible as they were. And he believes in right and wrong. And he believes in justice. And he knows the law better than anyone. And he loves it. He loves it. He loves the Old Testament, Jesus. And so we might think that uh, what's happening is the Pharisees were really for rituals and Jesus was against them. Or the Pharisees were really serious about the law and Jesus wasn't. No. That's not quite what was going on. Jesus definitely isn't someone going around saying, you know, nothing matters. I don't care. Look, I'm God and I don't care. Be whoever you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. No, no, no. It wasn't like the Pharisees thought you have to be holy before God. And Jesus thought, ah, this stuff, you don't have to be holy. That's not what was going on. Jesus was more for holiness than anyone you've ever met. So how can he offer the kingdom to the unworthy? That's the question. How can Jesus say God's plan was to fill his kingdom with people like that? 
And it gets bigger, actually, if you, if you keep going. And this is going to take a little work to think about. But it gets bigger because if we move past Jesus in the book of Luke to the time when Luke is writing this gospel about Jesus. And that's one of the tricks when you're reading a gospel. You think about Jesus in his time. And you think about Luke and the time he is writing and why he's writing this story about Jesus. And you think about our time. Those are some of the different settings. And even though Luke is writing this only a few years later, really, things have changed significantly Significantly, because by the time we get to Theophilus, who is the one Luke's writing this gospel to, we've got this Christian religion, and it's become clear that Jesus was actually bringing an end to all those Old Testament sacrifices and, and the need for the rituals as well, which is sort of the mind-blowing thing about Jesus. This would have seemed like a big change if you think about it, because pre-Jesus, what hope would there have been for sinners and people who were unclean to be part of the kingdom? If you ask the Pharisees, the Pharisees would have said the law, right, and sacrifices, right? That was the hope for them. What, what do you do if you're unclean in the Old Testament? There are rituals. What if you sin? There are sacrifices. So, so take a Gentile, a person who's not a Jew, as an example, who's about as far off from God as a Pharisee could imagine. What hope was there for a Gentile, according to the Pharisees? It was for him basically to become a Jew. He would have to go through this baptism, get circumcised, this washing, get circumcised and submit fully to the law and then become part of the system and participate in all these sacrifices and all that. And yet we read the rest of the New Testament and Paul and others are like, no, that's not the hope. It's Jesus. And this becomes a passion, of course, for the Apostle Paul as Paul takes the gospel out to people the Pharisees would have said are the last people the Messiah is coming for and says actually this, these are some of the people who the Messiah is coming for and they're going to experience his salvation without having to become like us Jews. Those rituals and those sacrifices, that's all done. That's not necessary for forgiveness and cleansing and being part of the kingdom of God. And, and I don't know, I, I guess I just wish I could get us to feel how revolutionary that is absolutely revolutionary, and it's revolutionary in a couple ways, actually. So for one thing, back to Luke, here you've got this righteous person, and you've got this sinner. And Jesus is saying he's coming for the sinner. And I know people don't use terms like that much anymore, but we've still got people on the outside. And I'm thinking you're outside. You've got an outside, people you're not inviting over unless something changes with them. You've got people like that. And sinners are God's outside. God hates sin. And yet Jesus is saying he's coming for the sinner. The kingdom of God is for the sinner. And he's so committed to that, that's part of why he gets killed. That's like, imagine, I don't know, this is silly, but, it, but it's like you've got this great knight who is a hero this incredibly handsome, perfect hero, and yet he's captured, and his head is being held down on a stone. Picture it, and you've got this king, and he has a beautiful princess on the one side, and he's got this lady who's in the absolute worst condition you can think of. I don't want to describe, but on the other side, but just think this awful lady, a witch maybe, and the king is like, choose the princess or die. I want you to choose the princess or die. And the knight is like, no, I choose the other. I'm going to die for the other. So that's one part of the shock of this. Jesus saying the kingdom is for the unworthy. And the other part is the reason he can say that. And this is going to be understood more later after Jesus ascends, I know. But the reason he can say that is because he's going to fulfill all the laws and the sacrifices himself. He's going to make a way for them to be cleansed. He's going to provide complete Forgiveness, and that means no more sacrifices. They're never going to have to sacrifice another lamb again or go through any of those rituals to be made clean anymore. And you have to remember, try to, again, try to put yourself in their shoes. Because these sacrifices and these rituals had been important to them for thousands of years. So their calendar revolved around some of these things. They had festivals, big parties every year having to do with these things. They didn't eat certain foods. They ate other foods. I'm saying their whole way of life, completely their whole way of life 
was wrapped up in this. And Jesus, what, he end, what ends up happening is he changes everything. He changes everything. He turns that whole world upside down. And so this is like, again, I don't know. It's hard to come up with an illustration that's appropriate. But it's like maybe somebody coming to America and saying, you know how you guys have been using money for years and years and years? This whole pay-for-thing system, this whole work-and-get-paid thing, it's over. I'm going to supply all your needs. So there's not going to be a need for money anymore. You're not going to work and get paid. You're not going to go to the grocery store and have to pay. None of that. What would happen? We wouldn't believe it. It would be hard to imagine life. It would be difficult for us to even process a whole new way of living life without money. It's that ingrained into everything. And of course, that at first maybe seems awesome to some of us, but this didn't seem awesome to the Pharisees and other religious Jews. And it's part of why Jesus gets crucified. Not just that he offered the kingdom to the unworthy, but that he was claiming to be the solution for the unworthy. You understand? And that's, that's key. They were so committed to the cleansings and the rituals and the sacrifices, and that wasn't wrong, really. God had given them those cleansings and those rituals and those sacrifices. And yet Jesus is saying, right now, you're missing the point of all that because I'm here and I'm the fulfillment of all that. That was pointing to me. That was supposed to lead to me. I'm here to do all that. I'm here to deal with the root of impurity and everything that made you unclean. I'm here to deal with the reasons that you made those sacrifices. And that made them angry. It's like, who do you think you are? We have rituals. We have sacrifices for all this. And you're saying you are able to permanently, fully fix all this? Come on. There's thousands of years of history here. And Jesus saying, I'm here now. I fulfill all that. It's like, what? Really? And even now, you know, we're not Jews back then, but it's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing to say about someone if we step back and think about what this means, really. Because we're far removed, I know, from those sacrifices and those rituals, of course. But if we take a look at our life, I think we can understand the idea. We can understand the idea. God wants you to clean yourself up, and there's things you need to do to make yourself worthy to come into his presence, to, to, to sort of earn his forgiveness. That's a philosophy of life that makes sense to us. That's how literally almost everything in our life works. We even have to clean ourselves up before we come to dinner, you know? And if you just look at your life, there is a lot of bad stuff. If you think about God being awesome and perfect, and you think about all the things you feel ashamed about, and you can't do it in a minute, I know, all the things you feel ashamed about. There's too much. But God is so holy and perfect. And imagine you standing before him. All the frailty, all the weaknesses, all the mistakes by themselves seem like too much. I've got to fix this before I go in. And then there's not just that. There's the actual sin, the actual guilt. And this is harder for us to feel the weight of because we don't usually call our sin for what it is. And so it seems smaller to us. We're usually more bothered by the stuff that's not actually sin. That's what's funny or, or sad, really. But if you think about the times you hated someone, flat out hated someone, or think about the time you used your words for the sole purpose of hurting another person. That was all there was to it. You just wanted to make them feel pain. Or think about the times you were sexually perverted, like flat out perverted. And then you take all of that sin and all of that shame and, and, and sort of put it in a pile right there. It's massive, right? It's massive. And here Jesus is saying he can deal with it. He can deal with it all. It, it's, it's, he can deal with it all by himself. He can take away the guilt. He can take away all the shame. He can make you fit to stand in the presence of God by himself. You just come to him. He can do it. And then, of course, it's not just you either. He's going to deal with the whole planet and reverse the way sin has affected the planet itself. And you, you, you think about that, what Jesus is claiming, and you can understand looking at him maybe and saying, can Jesus really do all this? How is he able to do all that? How do we know? 
and I don't know, but even maybe now you look at the Pharisees and you feel some sympathy. You think, this is a lot. This is actually a lot. When I see what Jesus is claiming to be able to do, and I see the revolutionary impact that was going to have on them, maybe the problem is they didn't have enough evidence, enough proof. Maybe they didn't understand, and that's why they got so upset. Because we always like to put the problem back on God, you know. We do that all the time. Man does something wrong, somehow it's God's fault. And then maybe to take this a step further, though, we can even be like, is there something so wrong with what the Pharisees were, were thinking? Because I can see not offering the kingdom to sinners. And they just wanted to be serious about cleansing and, and sacrifices. What is wrong with self-righteousness, really? And, you know, this is where it gets... It gets really shocking, this, this story, and we're going to get into it now. And I think it's going to be a little bit of a warning, but let me give you the setup first. So first, the, the context for Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26 is obviously Luke 4 and 5. And Luke has been introducing us to Jesus as a preacher and a healer. And as he, as he introduces Jesus' ministry to us, he keeps emphasizing how the people were responding. He's teaching, he's healing, and he's being glorified by all. So he's a big deal. And by the time we get to the middle of chapter 5, Jesus is really popular. Verse 15, Luke says, But the news about him was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And he's holy as well. He's popular and he's holy. Verse 16, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so the religious leadership from all over Israel are coming to Capernaum to check him out, verse 17. Uh, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, which makes sense, of course, because this is not a, a normal situation. I mean, like, Jesus is doing things nobody else ever had done before. And it was obvious to the people who were the most serious about God's word and God's law that something unique was happening in Israel, and they were starting to wonder. And so they came from all over, literally, Luke says, from every village in every region of Israel to evaluate Jesus. That's what's going on in this passage. They are evaluating Jesus. That's why they came to Capernaum. And God is going to use this to make a point about who Jesus is. Luke says at the end of verse 17, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing, which sounds strange to us, I know. The power of the Lord was present. But Jesus was completely submissive to God the Father's plan. And so Jesus did not heal when God the Father didn't want him to. He only healed when God the Father wanted him to heal. And God is empowering him to heal here. And Luke is pointing it out to make it clear to us that God is precipitating a situation. In other words, it is like this is a setup by God. This is the context. God has brought the religious leadership of Israel from all over the country to Jesus in order to reveal to them who he really is. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. And so he designed specific circumstances in order to illustrate, to give a, a real-life illustration to help them understand exactly who Jesus is and what he was doing. After giving us the setup, the context, we see the illustration, the lesson. And it's a, a little familiar, I know, but it's also kind of surprising when you slow down and look at it because it starts off with these friends, apparently. Uh, Jesus is in this house teaching, and somewhere in the city of Capernaum, there are a, a group of friends. Mark tells us there were four of them, and five if you count the man who was paralyzed. And after hearing about Jesus doing all of this healing, they decide to bring this friend of theirs who's paralyzed to him, which, of course, in and of itself would have required a lot of effort, obviously. If you think about a person who's paralyzed, trying to get them somewhere. And we're assuming that this man was fully paralyzed because they carry him across a town on a, a mat, a bed, which shows us something about their attitude toward Jesus. They're willing to work. They have to get their friend there to Jesus, and they're willing to do whatever it takes, even though I'm assuming they must have known that this wasn't really exactly the time and place, in that it wasn't that big a town, and there were uh, these religious leaders who were coming from every village, and religious 
leaders were important people in that day. So this is like, you might imagine, a convention of senators or something. And so people must have been talking, and they were all gathered together in one place, which would have been intimidating, I'm sure. And you know, if they weren't intimidated before they got there, you would think when they got there, they would have been intimidated because the picture Luke gives us is of them trying to get in but being kept away. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding new, no way to bring him in because of the crowd. And the crowd obviously knew why they were there. The guy's paralyzed on a mat. They're sweating as they brought him all across the town. And it would have been easy enough for them to split apart to let them through, but they didn't. And maybe one reason is because of the, the setting. This is a serious meeting, it seems. And, of course, another reason it might be is because people connected physical problems to sin. They did that back then more quickly than we do today, maybe. But you remember that time with the blind person in another gospel. Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind. So this wasn't a society at that time that had a whole lot of compassion for uh, the, those who were sick or, or paralyzed, really. But still, as we know, that didn't stop them, these friends. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And, and look, listen, they had a, like a million different reasons for giving up. Because it's not like paralysis was something that people could normally get healed of. <laughs> so they could have said, you know, to their friend, this seems like, too much. And there's the shame as well, because a lot of people would have thought it was their friend's fault and been looking down on them as a result. And then it was difficult when they got there. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, verse 18 says. They were trying, but verse 19, finding no way to bring him in. So they had no easy options here. But again, all that didn't stop them. They took him up to the roof and they took him there. I think you know this because a lot of houses in those days had flat roofs, almost like a balcony or a necker's up the side. And so you could use the roof almost like a balcony or an extra room. And I'm not sure whose idea it was to go up to the roof, obviously, which of the friends, but it would have been difficult carrying a guy on a mat who's paralyzed up a set of, of stairs after having walked all that way. And then they have to do physical damage to the property when they get there because it's not like there was a, a way into the house through the roof. They have to make a hole for themselves and it had to be a pretty big space to let a paralyzed man down on a mat. So if you picture it, maybe this scene, here's Jesus, and he's preaching. And you can imagine there's maybe this intense discussion that's going on in this crowded room, or at least people looking at him, evaluating him, when all of a sudden somebody notices uh, like a knocking sound on the room, like a jackhammer or something. <laughs> it's a sound, and it's not normal. And did Jesus keep talking? I, I, don't, I don't know. But they start to look at each other at some point, and they must have been saying, like, what, what, what's going on up there? And then, and then, like, stuff starts falling down from the roof, and then they see some light, and then there are, like, these four faces peering down at them, and all of a sudden there's, like, this paralyzed guy on a mattress. Being, I'm sure they had, to, like, help. You can't just drop him. Uh, I mean, this is, I think, a legitimately awkward moment, you know? And, and I can't come up with a, a comparison that fits nowadays, but maybe imagine a judge being interviewed by the Senate for a seat on the Supreme Court when a guy comes crashing through the roof on, of the Capitol building on a mattress. And you look up and there are like these four guys waving. God, God couldn't have made this a more memorable moment, right? If you think, how could God get the Pharisees and scribes to pay attention. This is a teaching moment. And God wants them to listen. He's brought the religious leadership from all over Israel to Jesus. And he's empowered Jesus to heal. And he's grabbed hold of their attention, even by the way these men have to enter. So that at this moment, absolutely every eye in the room is on Jesus, on this paralyzed man, and on his friends, because God wants to teach them something and he wants to make sure they remember. This is important. And they're going to remember, partly because of the shock, the surprise of the scene. Uh, this is a, a moment that is different than any they've ever seen before. But also, they're going to remember partly because at this moment, Jesus says something you wouldn't expect. Verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Which is shocking. Why is that shocking? 
Most of us have heard this story a lot of times, and so this is almost, it feels obvious to us. It's not shocking to us. We're like, so obvious. I mean, a guy comes crashing through the roof on a mattress, and he's paralyzed. What do you say? So obvious. The first thing you say is, man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> like, what, what else would you say? But actually, in real life, for most of us, it really doesn't make, it, it doesn't make sense if we're that paralyzed person. And Jesus says that to us after being let down through the roof. Why is that shocking for us? What are we wanting Jesus to say first? Get up, right? Your sins are forgiven. We're like, thanks, but I kind of got this problem. You know, we know sin's not good, of course, but we're tempted to think being paralyzed is worse. And while Jesus doesn't minimize being paralyzed, it's clear he thought different. He saw the problem of sin as being the fundamental problem of humanity that he came to deal with, which is one reason he addresses it first. Which, of course, the Pharisees and the religious leadership would have agreed with, actually. They had a different worldview than us, so they would have agreed that sin was the fundamental problem. Needing forgiveness was more important than even paralysis. And so that's not really the part that wouldn't make sense to them. What wouldn't make sense to them is Jesus looking at their faith and saying, man, your sins are forgiven you. Because that's not how they thought sin was forgiven. Because like I said earlier, they had a system for that already in place, and that was the temple and the sacrifices that took place there. And you know, we get on them, but they didn't make that up for themselves, that system. You remember, that came from the book of Leviticus. You read Leviticus, and over and over, Moses says, how are you forgiven? When someone offers sacrifices, that's how you're forgiven. So Leviticus 1.4 talks about a burnt offering and says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, the sinner, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And Leviticus 4.20 and chapter 4, verse 26, 31, 35, over and over. And in fact, Leviticus 16, they had a whole day called the Day of Atonement on which all of their sins for the year were to be dealt with through sacrifice. And there are some things about Leviticus and about these sacrifices that are confusing, but that isn't. Forgiveness and sacrifices were tied together. And so that's how these religious leaders would have understood forgiveness working for sure. And yet now what's happening is Jesus is standing there and claiming that authority for himself. What's going on here? The context. God's brought the religious leadership from all over Israel to illustrate something about Jesus. He wants to make clear to the Pharisees and the religious leadership that he has the authority to forgive sins. Luke is saying to us, it's through faith in Jesus that a person receives the forgiveness of sins, which again is awesome, but is also kind of revolutionary, really revolutionary. And again, not the faith part. Again, that's not what's revolutionary because it takes faith to put your hands on the head of an animal and believe that it's connected to forgiveness, if it's going to mean anything. It's not the faith or the forgiveness part that's revolutionary. It's the fact that Jesus is the means through which forgiveness comes. That is revolutionary. And the question that we've been asking is, how can we know that a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth has the right to do that? Like, did God really make that clear for the Pharisees? For everyone else, for us, because you can see the way they responded, verse 21. This is something that shocked them. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is not a terrible question, actually. If they asked it right, the right way, and listened to the answer, the question itself is a pretty good question. Because it normally would be blasphemy for someone to claim to have the ability to forgive sins by himself. Because <laughs> Jesus is obviously not talking about the way the paralyzed man sinned against him personally uh, as a man there in Capernaum. Instead, he's talking about all the sins that he ever committed against all kinds of different people. And so how can anybody do that? I can't do that. You can't do that. The only person who can do that is God. God's the only one who has a right to say someone's sins are forgiven. And you know what? If you look down, verse 22, Jesus doesn't argue with that. Actually, the opposite. He thinks this is such an important insight that he brings it out into the open. Because it's not like the Pharisees and the scribes were talking out loud. When, when Mark tells this story, he tells us they were, they were questioning in their hearts. So the room was pretty silent. But they must have been looking at each other. 
I don't know, maybe shaking their heads. And Jesus was somehow able to know what they were thinking. And so instead of letting them just think it, he brings the question out and confronts it straight on. And he doesn't deny the premise. He doesn't say, well, actually someone besides God can forgive sins. Instead, he asks a question, verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is kind of the question we're asking, right? Like, why did they question at this point? We might still kind of wonder. So Jesus is going to show what's really going on. And he asks, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? And maybe the key word there is to say, because obviously it's harder to forgive sins. It takes sacrifice. It takes a cross. But which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's something that we don't see. And rise up and walk is a claim that can be tested, which is why Jesus did healings, verse 22. And, and now we're at it. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself, and he just said something really big. This is the first time we read it in Luke, but it's connected back to Daniel chapter 7, and we'll get to it later, but it's big. And here, though, he's, he's saying, God wants you to know I have this authority. And how can you know that? This is why I heal. That you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is a, a good test, of course, because if Jesus is not who he says he is, and if Jesus is not able to do what he says he can do, what's going to happen? Nothing. This is a moment. This is a God-orchestrated moment, and it's not complicated. God is teaching a lesson, and it's pretty easy to get. This is where we get the real answer to the question why they are questioning in their hearts, because how do they know Jesus can do all the stuff he's claiming to be able to do? What was the proof? Look at the paralyzed man. What happens? Verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, which is so awesome. It's like he doesn't even stay around because his job is done. God's made his point. He just kind of picks up his mat. He's like, praise God, walks home. And his point is, why did this man get up? The answer is obvious. He got up because Jesus is the Son of Man, and he has that kind of authority. And if you look at the flow of Luke, I think that's the point of this passage. Luke has introduced Jesus as this preacher and healer, and he's showing us the purpose of his healings. They were not magic tricks. They were the means God used to demonstrate the authenticity that he was everything he was claiming to be. And yet, and here's maybe where it can get a little convicting. Because you have to be willing to accept that. All, all the evidence in the world is not going to help you believe that Jesus is able to provide forgiveness and cleanse you and bring you into the kingdom of God and fix everything that's wrong with you if you're not willing to submit to Jesus. Because look at the Pharisees. Look at the religious leadership. God sets this up. He sets up this whole scene to make this crystal clear. He brought Pharisees and teachers of the law from all over to evaluate Jesus. He empowered Jesus to heal. And he brought this paralytic with his friends. And he orchestrated this whole situation to get everyone's attention on Jesus and what Jesus was going to do. And then Jesus makes a shocking statement about forgiveness, which got them all upset. And then he doesn't leave it at that. He calls them out and he explains what is going on. And he offers proof by doing something no one else could do, making a paralyzed man walk which is not something you could argue or question either because everyone there knew what had happened and how it had happened because verse 26, how did they respond? An amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And the thing is, I don't think that's mostly the Pharisees saying that. I think that's the all there is, is the crowds and everyday people. Matthew actually says it was the crowds who were amazed. And then in chapter 6, we're going to see the Pharisees are upset, very upset. So I, I don't think the Pharisees are converted, converted here and all of a sudden are pro-Jesus. But what are they going to say? What else are they going to say when a paralyzed person gets up? They couldn't say anything because Jesus totally proved his point. He did have the authority to forgive sins. And yet, long term, they weren't willing to believe that. 
and not really even long-term. If you go down to chapter 6, verse 12, you have the scribes and the Pharisees again, verse 11, and, and they, they are filled with fury, and they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So they know. That's the point. They know. And yet they still won't come to Jesus. Why? Luke doesn't tell us here. And, and I, really, I'm not sure that's where he's going here. He's making a case for Jesus, and he's, he's showing Jesus proved he can forgive sins if we come to him in faith. But I do think it's good for us to ask why. And if we take a step back and we think about the story the Bible tells, a biblical worldview, we get an answer. It's hard for us to understand this if we use the story we grew up on. So the, the story we grew up on, the worldview, is that people are basically good. And they come to be evidence neutral. And they want to believe. They just want to believe so bad. They just really want to believe, but they can't. But the Bible tells a different story about people. It's not so naive. And so one answer the Bible might give as to why the Pharisees and the scribes got angry when Jesus claimed to have this kind of authority, even though he made it obvious he did have that kind of authority, is because our problem as humans is bigger than we think it is. And the Pharisees are such a good illustration. Because it's not like they were the worst of us. No! They, they were maybe the best. An amen from the crowd. Say it again for the people in the back. These were good men. And yet when it, when it comes to a relationship with God and being part of the kingdom of God, if there's one thing that's worse than being bad and being a sinner, it's being good. Remember Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now why, why, why? Does God just like sin more than he likes righteousness? No, it's because we're all a lot worse than we think we are even the Pharisees, and yet it is really hard for us to accept that, especially if we can do some things that look good. It's so hard that God spent thousands of years teaching the Israelites that he was the one who had to save them. I don't know how you could come out of the Old Testament thinking Israel could save themselves or make themselves worthy. I don't know. That's even part of why they had sacrifices and rituals. It wasn't to make them worthy. It was God stooping down and giving them a means of expressing their faith. And it was all supposed to point forward to what he was going to do through the Messiah. But in spite of that, all that, you can see what happened. The way the New Testament describes the Pharisees and the religious leadership, they're trusting in themselves that they're righteous to the point where we see here, God sends the one he's been promising for thousands of years, the, the one the whole Bible's about, and he proves that he's the fulfillment. He provides absolute proof, and yet they reject him, and it seems like part of the reason they reject him is because they don't need a savior, or at least not that kind of savior. They, they might not be able to fix their circumstances. They might not be able to defeat Rome, but this, the un cleanness, the, the sin, they can fix that part themselves, maybe with a little help. But they can basically fix it themselves. Which I know to us perhaps doesn't seem to be a big deal, but is a big deal. Because what is that? What is that attitude? If God tells you you need a savior and God sends the savior and God proves he's the savior and then you reject him because you don't think you need a savior, what is that? That is pride. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that is the ultimate problem. The whole story, this whole story with Jesus illustrates the problem of pride in such a big way because you might think, okay, I've got three people here. I've got a leper, I've got a paralyzed man and his friends, and I've got a group of religious leaders looking at Jesus. And who is it going to be harder for of that group? Who's it going to be harder to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. I would think it was going to be harder for the leper and the paralyzed person because in their day that would mean G believing that Jesus was able to heal them and, and cleanse them and willing to do that. But you know what? They did. They believed. They came to Jesus. And yet you know who didn't? Even though they're sitting there seeing the same things, the religious leadership 
pride, and in particular, self-sufficiency, the belief that we are enough or that we can clean ourselves up, that we can deal with our problems ourselves, is a much bigger obstacle to coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus than difficult circumstances or physical need. And that's where so much uncertainty and so many objections to Jesus actually come from. Because things can be confusing. Sure, we all get that. But God is God. He created this entire universe. It wasn't hard for him. And he has a plan. A really good plan. And it's amazing. There's a kingdom coming. And Jesus has come and, come and proven he can deal with all of our problems. By healing the sick, defeating demons, cleansing lepers, forgiving sin, rising from the dead, and defeating death. And you can be part of it. God is calling you to be part of it. He has made a way for you to be part of it. All of that shame in your life, that's not going to stop God. He's provided a way to deal with it through Jesus. And all that sin, that's not going to stop God either. There's a means of forgiveness. Death isn't even going to stop God. But you know what will keep you from being part of the kingdom? Even if all the evidence is there staring you in the face, pride, self-righteous pride, fear that more than you fear anything. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we pray your kingdom come. We pray that with hope and confidence and not absolute terror because we know that you have forgiven us of all of our sins and provided a way for us to be completely cleansed so that we might stand in the very presence of God. But we also pray for those here, Lord, and those we know who, who are outside the kingdom and who are going to experience your judgment not because, not because you're not able to save, but because they're not willing to humble themselves. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Give us, give us faith and strength and joy in Jesus, in you, in what you've done. And we pray this in your name. Amen.